The following audio content is a talk from Convergence, a service for young adults at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website at upc.org forward slash young adults. There is this kind of war, there is this battle of dreams. And dreams matter. Our imagination matters. Our vision matters. And it matters because it ends up shaping our actions in pretty profound ways. John knows this, and so he writes a book that speaks to our emotions and our imaginations to, to get us to, to enter into it, to maybe finally see what is really real, what is truly beautiful, what is worth investing our time in, to be the kind of people who don't just go along off a cliff, but actually go out into the world in such a way that, that we can act redemptively, we can act in a restoring way, that we can point to what is true instead of running after what is not true. So it enters in because it knows our actions are informed by our visions. Our investments are guided by our imaginations and our dreams. Our dreams call for our faithfulness. In fact, they even call us into places where we sacrifice. We put it all on the line. We go, I'm willing to give up something now because of this, the dream that I have. Well, we're not talking about, this isn't the realm of religion only. I mean, this is the realm of Rome. And Ron's been helping us understand that a bit as we've been going through this series because they're playing this game big time. See, Rome, they're painting a vision. There's a bold man on a white horse called Caesar, called an emperor. There's a promise of peace and prosperity and all it takes is a little token of faithfulness. It's, in some instances, we hear that all you gotta, all you gotta do is you gotta just, you just gotta pick up a little bit, a little bit of incense, throw it into uh, this fire and declare that Caesar is Lord, which is not just like, yeah, you're in charge, you're Caesar. No, Caesar is God. That's all you gotta do. No big deal. What's, what's so big about that? See, the question for us isn't whether we have dreams, but what that dream is, what that vision is, and if it indeed is leading us into a place of life, or if it's leading us into a place of death. For those of us who are in a faith community, who are followers of Jesus, we want to know, is that vision leading us towards God, or is it actually leading us away from God? Dreams matter. But I think, you know, as I think back uh, to dreams, because dreams are often, you know, dreams are, they're often sometimes what's, what's scary about them. Kyle's actually done a lot of work on this. Uh, he's informed me a lot in this whole area, because so much of our decision making, often we don't even know what's going on. We don't even know how it's shaping us. You know, dreams often, they just kind of happen. Right? They just kind of, as we, they, we pick them up as, as we go along. When I was a kid, I mean, there is no, I mean, you, some of you, I don't know if you're from Washington, do, who makes it down to Disneyland? Anybody? Okay, just the, okay, some of the chosen few who live down in California. Well, Disneyland, right? So when I'm a kid, I get to go to Disneyland. I love Disneyland. I mean, it is truly the Magic Kingdom. And when I was a little kid, I was probably no older than Noah. Noah was six. I was probably seven. We went to Disneyland, and I had, I distinctly remember two things from, from that trip, distinctly. The first one is Snow White. I think I something happened early in me. I, that's what I'm saying. I don't know. Snow White captured my imagination. I mean, we walked around all day. I actually have pictures, and I wish I had time to find it. It could have been awkward. Maybe it's too vulnerable, though, right? It, pictures of me finally seeing Snow White. I'm this little blonde, toe-headed kid. I'm just like, you know, like most guys when they meet girls that they are really impressed with, right? Hi! Yeah. Right? I'm so in love with Snow White, and I finally found her. We looked all day. Little dwarves were hiding her, I think. I hated those guys. Wanted to be her Prince Charming. Anyways, but Snow White was my, she, she was what captured my imagination. And, you know, our imaginations and our dreams, they end up being vulnerable, right? I mean, they, they end up being about this kind of stuff because they, they speak to who we are at, at, at our very basic level, the things that we long to be, the people we long to be with. They, they, they speak into who we ultimately want, want what kind of significant, significant impact we want to make. They're, they're vulnerable because they speak to the very, uh, their articulations of what, it's the very core of who we are. Well, growing up later in California, I figured, you know, you, you, I got influenced later, and I thought, you know, for sure I wanted to have, you know, uh, some blonde-haired girl. I mean, if I, if my ultimate woman would have been the blonde haired, kind of straight blonde haired girl, and you know, they're pretty, you know, I like blondes. But, 
I ended up marrying a brunette. And so my mom, of course, as moms are wont to do, go, you married your dream girl. You're Snow White. There's bathrooms just outside the door if you guys want to go throw up. That's just out there in the back. But I finally found my dream girl, Shannon, a brunette. I didn't think I was going to marry a brunette, but I, but I did. But we have, that's part of our dream. It's who, who we want to be. The second thing, though, that I, it was Snow White, but then the second thing I remember was uh, Tomorrowland. You guys remember Tomorrowland? You've been there? Right? Tomorrowland used to be more awesome. I'll just be, <laughs> be honest about that. It used to be a lot shinier. And I remember going to the building, and it was the building of tomorrow or the future or something like that. And somehow it spun. I don't know how, but the building moved, right? And, and, it, and it moved around. And you could go in there, and I remember seeing what the future would hold, right? And you walk through all these things. And, and, you know, I went actually a few years ago, and a lot of the rides have broken down in Tomorrowland. It really is not looking good. But also, you know, suddenly the future is just like video games. Like, that's about it, right? And it's like recycle. Here's you can recycle tomorrow. Right? So, but anyways, when I was a kid, though, it was grander. When I was a kid, I went in there and I could see the, the oven of tomorrow, the kitchens of tomorrow. I could see, I could see what would we, how would we move around, you know, with these little pods would sort of float around. I think I have a picture, right? It, it, was, it was at the tail end when all was glorious and technology would save the day. And so we went through and we would see all this technology that would make life so good. We would be able to sit back and just laugh because we had so much time on our hands, right? Because the little robots are doing everything, right? We sit around and, 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 you know, and there's no, this actually has cars. I, there's actually this movie and I, I couldn't get it in time here that, that actually was made by Disney and putting together, you know, what would the highway of tomorrow look like? And it was, you know, it was amazing. It was like, you know, this 16 lane highway with like two cars on it, right? No traffic. I can't even see any other cars in the future. I love it, right? You, and, and so I go through it. I remember being so impressed that I was so enamored with what was going to happen in the, what was going to happen in the future. What, what, what would be in store for me? Well, we all live in this place of visions and dreams. It's not a, it's not a Christian thing. It's not a religious thing. It, it's who we are as people. There is a writer that talks about that, to be some, to, to think of the future, to have visions and dreams and to imagine the future is as human as breathing. We can't not think about it. It's not just the realm of religion or even politics, but certainly cultures. And we, we project these certain dreams out. And it's because at some point we have to make decisions about right now, about something that is in the future. We have to make some sort of decision, and really we don't know. So we have to kind of take a gamble. Or maybe to make it sound more uh, religious, we have to take a step of faith. So we hopefully, we look around, we, have, we try to get a sense of the best trajectory, and then we make a decision on that. Right? But we don't actually know. It's not a fact. We don't know what we're, we're hoping. And so we make all these projections into the future. We do it all the time. Business does it all the time. One of the things that you, we hear as we listen to the news is, is that uh, the government wants us to start buying houses. It is probably the best time to buy houses ever. I mean, it's, the mortgage rates are so unbelievably low, but nobody wants to buy. Right? Because nobody's actually sure, am I going to get laid off tomorrow? When we look out, our future doesn't look so bright. Doesn't, it doesn't look so good. And so, but we have to have a, some vision because that will di- dictate what is going on um, for us right now. So my question, and what we're going to look at tonight is we're going to look at Revelation 21, 22. But I want to ask you, what is your vision? You know, sometimes people could say of heaven. What's your vision of the future? What's the dream that, that is in the front of your head? We all have one. We all operate with one. It doesn't necessarily mean, though, and I think this is the mistake, is it doesn't mean that it's really well articulated or it's, uh, um, it, we, we could immediately describe it to somebody. It might feel like it, it's little bits and pieces. It might not feel like it is as bright and clean and neat and straightforward as perhaps the vision that we have of tomorrow or Tomorrowland. Things like Tomorrowland, actually. Disneyland, it's not looking quite so good. I think sometimes trying to figure out what our vision is is um, difficult, in part because we live in a world, don't we, where the future isn't so bright. In fact, it can be fairly discouraging. In fact, the optimism of the past actually feels kind of foolish. Um, Technology hasn't necessarily 
save the day. You know, it turns out, you, you start, you watch these awesome videos about the future, of, about the kitchen of tomorrow, and it turns out that maybe you don't want your food heated by nuclear radiation. Just saying. Maybe you don't want your dishes dried off by a supersonic something, whatever that means. Right? As you go through, you find out that technology actually might have made things really convenient. This is a, this is out of a video where they, they were talking about the, the kitchen of the future and there's this little girl wandering around and she's discovering all the conveniences that just pop out of the bottom and, and actually in the middle of the table is a dishwasher. I don't know why you'd want that, but anyways, right there, you could just gorge and just drop it in. They're going around, they're like, little Sally. You're old enough to help mommy with the chores and help mommy around the house. Maybe you can even make dinner. She goes around, she discovers how easy it is for her to make dinner because everything just pops out and then goes, pops away. And yet, one of the things we've discovered about technology that, that really struck me about this is that little Sally might actually want to make dinner with her mom because she probably wants to connect with her mom. And you might have technology that makes life more convenient, but we also are discovering more and more, aren't we, that sometimes that technology, that convenience, actually has left us in a kitchen by ourselves when we'd rather be with somebody else. And as we've looked out, that, that in some ways things are more convenient, and yet perhaps they're more lonely. Traffic hasn't gone away. In fact, it, it's worse than ever before. The economy isn't growing. In fact, it, it might not... It looks like we're not going to have it better than our parents. I mean, that's, people have been saying that forever. They, I heard just yesterday they were talking about on the radio. There's a new report that comes out that says people, young adults, people in their 20s and 30s, uh, very likely are, going to, are already making way less than their parents ever did. Their, their employment is way worse than those that are 65 and older. I mean, the few, the, the, that promise that we've had, peace and prosperity, that it's always going to be better for our children, it's actually pretty solid that that future isn't going to happen. In fact, it's looking like it's going the other uh, way. In fact, this land that does have a lot of opportunity in it, perhaps there's a sense that it feels like it's not necessarily progressing in a positive way. We see lots of really good things, and yet there are perhaps ways in which we might feel like things have gone astray. Um, I saw this, I actually saw this today. I, was, I walked by, this is in the news rack. Um, the New Yorker. I mean, they're not Christians. And yet here's, the, on the very front cover is this image and suddenly we're, we're picking up, we're mixing commerce and culture and religion. Fascinating, isn't it? I just ran across this in the gym. I should have been working out, but I was looking at magazines. Confession. You know, there's a sense something is gone astray. It's not that the city is bad or commerce is bad, but there is something that feels like has gone terribly um, wrong. Well, I think it's difficult because in a lot of ways it feels foolish to be optimistic, feels foolish to, to hope. We have a lot that feels like is going wrong or, or out of control. And I think it's also difficult for us perhaps to articulate what is our vision of where we're going? What is, our, what is the dream for us to live into, to push into? Because you know, we're inundated with more options than ever before. And especially when we feel like they're on the grand scheme, things are out of control, we often feel like we're left to sort of cobble together things that work. So we'll take a little bit from kind of, I heard a pastor say that once, and, and a little bit from here, a little bit from this kind of spirituality, a little bit from, from what, I, what I learned, I could, if I did these six steps, that might work. And so we cobble together a little bit of something of a vision as we go forward. Because we're just trying to make something work. The problem with that is that those things can be good, and we have, in some ways, we're inundated by that. And in fact, we're actually, actually, people are asking us all the time, look, if you just take this, this will solve your problems, right? So we end up doing vision by consumer. Well, I'll just buy what I need to piece it together. And yet the problem with that is that as we look back, if we were to reflect back actually through the book of Revelation, we see that in the churches, what we see is a kind of a cobbling together. And in some ways it makes sense because they're trying to make their way in a world that feels fairly, um, uh, it might be benign, but it might be malevolent too. It, it, they could, they're somewhere in between uh, culture and the Roman Empire leaving them alone. Sometimes we feel like if we can just be left alone, and sometimes we feel like they're being demonized. 
I mean, at one point, because of what Christians believed and in the way that it, it, it started to push against the vision that culture had around it, they actually called uh, Christians uh, atheists, man-haters, because how dare you not worship our local grain god? Because if you do that, that means we're not going to have food and that means you hate me. How dare you talk about another god? You hate us. So we sit in this time and we feel like sometimes we're just left alone. And, and so oftentimes we try to cobble together. And yet what we read in the seven churches is that Jesus looks into that and he goes, I know where you live. I know the struggles that you have. And yet I want to call you to something better because you're trying to cobble together a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And, and sometimes you actually are just calling yourself Christians. But like Laodicea, you're neither hot nor cold. You're actually not good, useful for anything you're talking about how wealthy you are and how good-looking you are and, and how, how rich and mighty you are, and yet you're, you're pathetic. You're sad. You're pitiful. You're wretched. Come on. Stop playing the game. Come. I want more for you. Well, I think as we begin to think about something, I want to encourage you to think about what's your vision um, all of us probably are sitting somewhere in this place where we're trying to figure out what, what is it that I dream about and do I even dare to dream? And, and, and I guess I would, you could maybe think about it in, within two questions. One of them is, what do you, how do you think um, it's all going to be put right? Where is accountability coming from? Who's going to say stop to the evil, to the brokenness, to um, the way your family has gotten destroyed? or the way that you were, um, you, you weren't given a lot maybe from your family. You actually felt like you walked into adulthood hobbling because of what came. The, the injustice that you experience when you don't feel like you can get a job or the opportunities or the, or the community that you're looking for. When you look around and you see people who just seem to get beat down and beat down and beat down, at some point you have some sort of idea about when that stops and who stops it. Now, it might be, that you think nobody, there's nobody. In that case, you're going to try to stop it. You're, or you're going to try to like create walls to make sure that that never happens to you. But at some point, you have some idea about who says stop. And you also then have that with that. But it goes together that you also have some idea of, of what is good. And so um, what is, it ends up being what is worthy, what's investing in. So... Um, some sort of idea of what is good could, you know, used to certainly include that if I get a, a college education, that will lead me to a good life. I can see a good life. I, I, I hear people around me talk about a good life. And that good life says that I need a college education. So I'm going to do college education right now. It says what you want to invest in, what you're willing to sacrifice for, the outlines of what is truly good and beautiful, because that's what you're going to start spending your life towards. Because we're all smart. Nobody's dumb. Nobody actually says, I'm going to try to make sure that by the end of my life, nobody likes me. Right? I'm the, I'm not, I'm going to stop right there because there'd be bad words that come out. I'm going to make sure that everybody hates me. My, you know, that I leave, I'm going to make sure that I leave my kids. I'll father some kids and walk away. I'll make sure that I um, push my wife around. I'll make sure that I, uh, you rip my husband to shreds uh, every night. I'll make sure that I, um, uh, do damage in my workplace, that I get a lot of money, and I screw a lot of people, because that's awesome. Nobody wants to do that. Nobody thinks about that. Everybody's got a vision of, what, of where we're going to and where it's good. The question is, is it leading us in the right way? So I want us to spend some time taking a look at this passage. I asked Ron to come up and um, help us understand what's going on here. One of the things that I've become um, convicted, convinced of over the years is that we talk a lot about heaven, but we very rarely actually talk about what the Bible says about heaven. And I think because of that, we don't have a sense of what's good. And I want us to spend some time thinking about that. And I, I, I'm hoping that it'll spark something for you out of this time. Um, be honest. Ron, when we talked, um, I wanted to focus a lot on what's good, but part of what is coming in the end is judgment. And it's not a section we read. We touched on it a little bit last week. But the, I was intrigued because you really said judgment is good. It really is about goodness. Why, what, is that? What, what happens in here and what do you mean by that? Well, I think one of the things that we recognize, not just from a book like John's Apocalypse, but from 
really biblical theology throughout Scripture that uh, if God can be described as good, if it can be said that God is for us or that God is for certain things, it means, it implies that he's also against other things. Um, You have to, I think, think of God's grace, God's mercy, God's love, his compassion, all of these positive traits and aspects of God's character in terms of the fact that they stand against something. So when God says yes to certain things, he's at the same time saying no to certain other things. Um, And I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but I think it's probably helpful for me just to read. And this is a book, actually, that I think, Pastor John, you've recommended on the Convergence website and the Facebook group. Um, but Eugene Peterson's reverse thunder, but here's what, how he describes salvation. I think it will help us. He says the root meaning in Hebrew of salvation is to be broad, to become spacious, to enlarge. It carries a sense of deliverance from an existence that has become compressed, confined, and cramped. Salvation is the plot of history. It is the most comprehensive theme of scripture overtaking and surpassing catastrophe. Salvation, and this is the key phrase, is God's determination to rescue his creation. It is his activity in recovering the world. One of the things that we said a while ago, uh, almost from day one, is that Genesis uh, 1, 2, and 3, as it introduces us to the God of creation who is present, who creates man in his image, and then, uh, and then obviously we have Genesis chapter 3 with the story of lack of trust on the part of humans, disobedience. That story is mirrored in reverse in Revelation 20, 21, and 22, where we have Revelation 20 as the response to the sin and disobedience in Genesis 3, and the response is to bring that to an end, to say stop or enough. And judgment uh, is this, judgment is actually a neutral term in the sense that it depends on what side of a judgment you're on. Um, and we've just sort of had this really, you know, this attention-grabbing court case in L.A. with Dr. Conrad Murray. And the reality is that as the verdict came down the other day, there were some squeals of delight and there were, there's also anguish. I mean, this judgment that's rendered is both positive and negative. And when God says yes to something, when he says yes to his intent for creation and for humanity, he's saying no to other things. And I think we need to think of it in those terms. Um, I don't want to say too much more because I don't want to, you know, time to monopolize. I just want to say that We're going to talk in just a moment about some of the images and language that John uses to describe his creative, imaginative vision of the future. And what he says positively, I think I'm going to show you that a lot of what John says about the future is figurative. And it will not necessarily look like the picture we see in Revelation. And if that's true of God's good future... That same thing is true in this apocalypse of the descriptions of judgment. So when we talk about things like lake of fire and we hear this language, just like much of the language of God's future is John's symbols all colliding together to create this wonderful new image, the same thing is true of judgment. These are images that are associated in the ancient world with specific things. And so I I think what I want to prepare us for, and I can already hear questions, but I don't think we're talking about literal descriptions of sulfur, for example, on the one hand in terms of God's judgment. And we're also not talking about a literal city that's 1,500 miles high, which is what the measurements would tell us in Revelation 21, right? So at least that's a starting point. So I, your question was on judgment. Well, let me, let me just interject. I, I want Ron to describe a little bit of the city, and then I want to get into your questions, because I'm sure there's lots of questions on this, and there's a lot of times we don't talk about this. So uh, you'd be thinking about those, and we can address those in a minute. So, but, so then talk to us about there's a no, but then what's the yes, and help us understand the city, and then there's this tree, too, that, that seemed to figure prominently. It's amazing to me, once, once you're looking for it, it's amazing to me how many times you actually see this in the text. Right when, when the reading started in Revelation 21 verses 1 and 2, the point of all of this is that God is with people. 
And then as the city comes down and it's described, the point is reiterated. God is now with people. The, the chasm or the gap or the separation has been collapsed. God is with people. And, and this is fascinating because many Christian visions of the future have this sort of escapist tinge to them. We're going to fly away someday. You know, there are songs written about that stuff. And we're going away to heaven. When in fact, John's vision of the future is that what we might call heaven actually comes to earth and reinvents and reinforms and, re- and recreates what we know to be here. Um, and then again in chapter 22, when you have the image of the new Eden and the garden with the tree of life, God is with people. So if you get lost in the carnelians and the gems and the stones and the tribes and the measurements and you know the furlongs and the stadia and all this kind of stuff, you're missing the point of the picture. God is with people. So now let's start to unpack it just a little bit, all right? The first thing that is described is the shape and the composition of the city. And as John sees this thing come down, it's like this great floating cube, right? And let me just ask you guys this question. If you know your Bible at all, especially in terms of the Old Testament, can you think of something else in the Bible before Revelation 21 that was a cube? Yes, Roman. The temple, but specifically, what part of the temple is in the shape of a cube? Yeah, it's the Holy of Holies, and it's the Ark of the Covenant. The Holy of Holies is a cube. And what is the Holy of Holies? It's the place where God lives. Guys, this is what's going on in Revelation 21. The cosmic temple, the cube that was recreated in the wilderness and then plunked into the real Jerusalem temple under Solomon... The grand cosmic version of that, in other words, God's presence, fully experienced, comes down. You understand, if you actually take the cube from Revelation 21 and try to plant it on the earth, you're talking about a city that runs 1,500 miles in one direction, 1,500 miles in another direction, and 1,500 miles straight up. It's not something that's intended to be taken literally. And in fact, when you look at the description of the walls, um, put in our terms, the walls are about 75 yards thick. All right? Now, John is going to tell you that there's no need for the gates to be closed once God's judgment has fully come and he said no to what needs to be said no to. There's openness. This city is inclusive. People come and go in this new city. Why would you need walls 75 yards thick? And the answer is they weren't thinking 75 yards. John's actual measurement was 144 cubits, which was the standard measure uh, of space at that time. Does anybody recognize the number 144? 12 squared. 12 squared. Right. And in, the, in Revelation, we had 144,000. Remember, we talked about that in chapter 7 and again in chapter 14. The 12 tribes, the 12 apostles, and times the number 1,000, which is John's version of infinity. And you have this perfect number, 12, sca- 12 squared, not 12 scared, 12 squared times thousands. And that's the perfect number of the people of God. Now you have walls that this is a cube perfect in dimension, and its thickness is, again, this number 144. Then you discover that the gates, there are 12 of them. There are um, foundation stones. There are 12 of them, right? And these relate to the tribes of Israel and to the apostles of the Lamb. And here's what John's telling you, God's ultimate intent. And John is simply taking the images and the symbols from his imaginative world, from the pool of resources that he has to imaginatively think about God's future. He says what God intended all the way back in Exodus when he gave Moses his presence. Remember what Moses said? What's going to distinguish us from any other people if you don't go with us? God said, all right, I'll give you the cube, right? I'll give you my presence. And this essentially is the return of this full vision of God's presence among his people. So one of the questions that I think I would have is this. If it was you 
writing the final two chapters to John's Apocalypse, what are the images you would use to think of life in its most perfect, intended sense? How would you describe what the future looks like? And lest you think that I'm saying, well, this is just open to anybody's interpretation, and if you like chocolate, you know, (laughs) heaven would have streets of chocolate, you know. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying for all of us, we've already been asked by John, are you going to buy the narrative of Caesar or the narrative of the slaughtered lamb? Are you going to run into the chaos? Are you going to embrace the call for justice and peace, uh, even when it costs you your own life? So if you've bought into that program, now let me ask you the question. What does that look like in Seattle? What do you imagine? What does the future look like for you? And the point isn't that you get plunked into it right now, but if that's what you believe, if that's the dream that you have for God's future, using what you have at your disposal, you will live and work into that. You know, it's interesting. I've had uh, been really, uh, it's been fun to have my son along, and it's been also fun as a dad to watch him practicing, training, working out, wanting to play basketball. And what's interesting is to see the choices that he'll make at different times regarding diet or sleep or exercise because he has a dream, he has a goal. And I want to just sort of take that idea and plunk it into Revelation 21 and 22. What's your dream? What's your sort of gospel-baptized, most creative, imaginative vision of what the future could be? I'd love to hear that, actually. Well, let's stop. Let's stop. Any dreams or questions or uh, comments as we, as we get into this? It's a great question. You know what's interesting, Taylor, about that is that if, if all we had was what we call the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures, if that was our Bible... Um, which, that's not just a hypothetical. For all the earliest Christian communities, that was their Bible, right? There was no New Testament. But, Taylor, let's just imagine that that's all we had. There would be virtually nothing there about the afterlife. Um, they, they, they know of a place called Sheol. Um, the Greek version of that is Hades. Um, they understand that, for the most part, from a Jewish uh, perspective, that life is what you have here, and then you leave this life, and then you go into the land of shadows, or you go into the land of shades, and nobody really knows what to do with that. And it's not really until people hear, not only hear Jesus say, I am the resurrection and the life, um, but then actually do it and come back from the dead, that people have some sense that there's something beyond this. And Jesus himself refers to paradise. Here's what's fascinating, Taylor. When you look at Revelation 21, I I tried to say at the start, the theme is God is with people, right? That's the point. It's really much less about what it looks like or what we could possibly draw. The point is God comes and what was envisioned in Genesis 1 and 2 has been redeemed and restored and reinvented and recreated and God is with people, just like he was with Adam, the first human. But here's the interesting thing. Paul, talking about what it might be like to lose his life in a Roman court, says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so I think the best that we can say is that until we see the final full consummation that John envisions, whatever that looks like, right now the best we can say is that the hope of anyone in this in-between time Um, you know, between the time of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection and the time of God's final full kingdom, the best we can say is that we're present with the Lord. And uh, actually, it's N.T. Wright, the New Testament scholar, who says that the Christian hope is not life after death. The Christian hope is for life after life after death. And I'll say that again. Think through it with me, right? Resurrection... Revelation 1 and 2 actually means life after life after death. In other words, to die for Paul was to be present with the Lord, but that's not his eternal hope, right? His hope is the resurrection. Hmm. And resurrection implies what? Real, physical, living in a resurrected state. 
Does that make any sense? Maybe it raises another question, but I think on the one hand, there is something we can say about this in-between time, but it's probably a lot less than we'd like to say. Yeah. Talk, talk about the tree of life a little bit, because the yeah. tree of life is in there. Yeah. Well, you know, here's, here's the other aspect of um, what John decides to include. And if you could, you know, I often rant and rave to students and say chapter divisions and verses are such a terrible thing because they destroy the narrative and you don't really read the story of the text. However, the break between Revelation 21 and 22 is a helpful one in this sense. John gives you the vision of the, the massive cube city. Right? That's Revelation 21. That, and the point is God present with his people just like he's always intended it. But then he stops, and it's almost like he says, put another way, or let me use another creative imaginative picture. Now I want to envision a garden with a tree of life. And, and if you're trying to connect the dots here, think back to Genesis 1, where there's the tree of life placed in the garden, Think then to Ezekiel 47, where Ezekiel has a vision of the future, and Ezekiel has this vision that says, and, and you've got to understand a bit of the irony of this, because Jerusalem, if you've ever visited it, you know, Israel is in this really dry place where they have to pipe in all their water and they irrigate like crazy. But what's fascinating is, um, I mean, if I can use that terminal, if I can use that technological terminology, Revelation 22 is a vision of God's future where there is this fully flourishing, irrigated future creation. And in Ezekiel 47, Ezekiel actually sees, you know, part of the Temple Mount break open and this great river of life comes rushing out and it waters the countryside. And Ezekiel says, and here's what happens. This river runs out and trees start popping up on either side of the banks of this river and everyone gets well, everyone's fed, everyone's healed with these trees. And here's what John does. He takes a little bit of Ezekiel, and he takes a lot of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3, and he says, well, here's what I think. I think God's future looks something like this. Yes, there's a river. And yes, it irrigates and nourishes and makes life flourish to its fullest intent. But there's one tree, and that tree grows on both sides of the bank. You understand? He's collapsed these images, and he says, I'm taking the tree of life from Genesis 1. I'm taking both banks of the river from Ezekiel 47. And this tree grows up. And here's the fascinating thing, you guys. In Ezekiel 47, the Jewish prophet Ezekiel said that this tree would be for healing. Its leaves would be for healing. And everybody who reads that goes, yes, Yahweh will heal Israel. But John, in the Roman Empire, exiled on Patmos, says this tree, its leaves will be for the healing of the nations, not just the healing of Israel. This is for everyone. So what I'm trying to do is emphasize these are the ideas Ideas, you know, don't get caught. I mean, the symbols are important because they communicate ideas, but often we kind of can't, we can't see the forest for the trees. We can't get through the, the jungle of images because, uh, you know, they stop us, they trip us up. But the idea is God is present with his people. God reinvents and re-envisions creation as he's always intended it. He is with his people. It is secure. It is open. It is inclusive. I believe that John's vision of the future is a city with an economy, with commerce, with people flourishing and doing what they've been gifted and created to do, minus all the crap from Babylon. Mm minus all the greed from Babylon, mm. minus all the lust and the adultery from Babylon, minus all the self-aggrandizing and self-gratification from Babylon. It's still a city. And I don't think cities are bad. I actually think people like Paul and Peter and John loved cities because that's where God's people were most populous. Mm. And, uh, and I think John's vision of the future is both garden and city. Maybe he's thinking acreages. I don't know. But it's the best of both worlds. Any questions on that, Kyle? Well, it, it's one of these things. Uh, it, I, I appreciate that comment, Kyle, because continuity, discontinuity is actually not just related to our visions of the future. Um, that 
that concept was one that early Jewish people in the first century who heard about a Messiah by the name of Jesus had to try, they had to try to wrap their minds around, yes, the familiar, continuous uh, idea of Messiah, and yet on the other hand, a crucified Messiah looks like nothing we would expect. Mm. And so I think that's true here as well. When we think of city, when we think of, of, of flourishing life, you know, some of these images that John is working with, there is a sense in which I think that we will recognize God's future in a very real way. Mm. If we take seriously that when, when God created things in the Genesis narratives 1 and 2, he declares them good. Mm. I don't think he trashes and burns what he declares good. Eugene Peterson, in, uh, not, not in this book, I read something else, and he asked the question this way. When you look at the world, and let me ask you this about Seattle, mm. about your neighborhood. When you look at the world... Do you see a garbage dump Hmm. or do you see a rose garden that's been trampled? And, you know, the more we get hurt by the world around us, the more we're kind of burned by things, the more we want it to burn. And and the more we're tempted to think, I'll just trash it all and I'll let God start over. And that's not the business that the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is in. He's about redeeming and restoring what was once good. And so I think you do have this. And that, that actually, I think maybe the best way to think about the continuity, discontinuity, is that's the role of judgment. That the judgment we read about in the book of Revelation says there are some things that cannot continue about the broken world and the broken order. But there are deeply embedded, ingrained good things about creation that God intends to bring back to full order. Does that make sense? You know what, uh, can I just piggyback on the fact that Kyle asked the question to say that Kyle and uh, many of the others, uh, all of the others who have been playing and, and singing with him have, I think, almost been demonstrating, working out what it means to creatively try to bring expression to these ideas. And in doing so, there's the redemption of music to some degree. There's the use of music for these redeeming, restoring qualities. And that's the kind of thing that, Boy, I, I want to become more imaginative and creative in thinking about God's future. But does anybody else want to ask some questions, either about details in the visions or yeah? It's a good. It's a good. It's a really it's a good question. question. Yeah. It's actually a question that I don't think Christians ask that, and this is going to sound like a strange answer. I don't think the earliest Christians asked that question for about the first twenty or twenty-five years after Jesus. Because they literally lived with this expectation that this good world is just around the corner. The parousia, the appearing of Jesus, is momentary. It's coming any time. Um, but once you get sort of 20 years down the road, suddenly, man, is this Jesus coming back like he said? Or is he coming as soon? And I think one of the places I would take you is Second Peter 3, where here you have an early Christian theologian wrestling with just your question. And here's what he comes up with. He says, first of all, God doesn't tell time the way we do. So he uses this metaphor and says, you know, with the Lord, a thousand thousand years is like a day. A day is like a thousand years. And some people have misused that verse to say, you know, there's been 6,000 years of human history and then there's going to be millennium and this kind of thing. And they've tried to use it as almost like a Bible code to figure out God's timetable. Garbage. It's a metaphor, right? A thousand years is like a day, all right? Um, but, but the point is, God simply doesn't tell time. What seems long to us isn't necessarily long in outside of the space and time universe. But the other response from within the space-time universe, here's what Second Peter 3 says. This is actually a demonstration of God's incredible patience and love. He wants all men to be saved. He wants as many as possible. So at least, I I guess the best I can do is say that's what the earliest Christians believed, that first of all, God's not bound by time the way we are. So I don't think he thinks of it as long if we think it's long necessarily. But secondly, what does seem long to us is simply an invitation for this to be an ever more expansive uh, kingdom with more opportunity, more inclusive, open to all. And God is being patient. And I think that's, at least that's what Second Peter 3 would say. Yeah, it's a great question. I feel like I also get a lot kind of towards that. Yeah. 
That's a great question, and here's the reason why. Because I think that in between the times, from the time of, of Jesus himself and then to the full consummation of that kingdom, uh, the kingdom really is present in the new community of faith. You know, the, the true community of Israelites, which we are all now uh, a part of, that really is the expression of the kingdom of God, which actually lends a lot of urgency to what we do. Because I think it would be possible to sit in a night like this and hear this revelation stuff and go, well, I guess according to Pastor John, God's got it all figured out in the end. And Ron says it's going to look a lot like what we have right now, but, you know, a lot better in some ways. Let's just kind of sit back and wait for it. And that's not the conviction of the earliest Christians. John believed that they needed to be able to live this life now. And so when we've been talking about running into the chaos and making a difference in creativity and imagination, it's about the fact that we represent that kingdom now and it's already at work. It's not just something we're waiting for. We already represent it. Yeah. Yeah, last one. One of the things that um, I want to encourage you to do, and that I, I've tried to do, there's Kyle referred to a video that's on Facebook, and I, there's a there's a number a number of videos that are on our uh, Vimeo page. I want to encourage you to look at. Um, I'll put them on the blog as well. As I want us to start, we need to start talking with one another. We need to start dreaming and imagining along the lines of what the Bible says. Um, one of the things that if we look forward down the road and we see some sort of just um, reality that doesn't have any, doesn't make any sense. It doesn't give us, it's just kind of this disembodied, we're floating around something, something. I don't know what. That doesn't allow us to live with a sense of creativity now. So I've asked a number of people to make some observations on that. Jeff Andrews was one of them. What do you, when you see this, what do you, what, what would, what might impact, what might influence how we do business? Ask another people. Ken suggested, he goes, I look at that and I go, here's some policy statements. God seems to care about this. Um, Brenda, if you want to bring, can you bring up like one of the, a uh, couple of these charts? You know, Eugene Peterson, he, he makes some observations. He says, you look, we see proportion and symmetry. We see light that reveals color. We see fertility and resources. In other words, there's a sense that we can actually uh, produce what we need to produce. Um, there's a redemptive foundation. I mean, one of the comments that I think he or somebody else makes that's fascinating is that you look at the, you look, you say, hey, great, the 12 tribes and the 12 disciples. That's the foundations of this new city. Without getting too literally, you go, the foundations, in other words, this city is built upon those people. Read the Bible about those people. They're a joke. Read Genesis about the 12 tribes about Simeon and some of the others and Reuben. I mean, it's, you're, you're looking at people who are broken, and yet somehow God says, I'm going to use them, and I'm going to use you. Somehow, I'm going to redeem it, but I'm going to use that as part of it. I'm inviting you into this. I, maybe, Carl, that might be part of it. I don't know exactly the answer on that, but there's a sense that there, God is allowing us to play, uh, uh, to play a role in the midst of this. And he's calling us to be the people who don't, who don't sit and go, you know, who cares? God's going to wipe it out. It doesn't matter. This stuff around me doesn't matter. The junk, even the brokenness of my own life doesn't matter. I don't maybe even really matter. No, God says you matter immensely, and what you do right now matters immensely. And I'm calling you now to give witness, testimony, to the goodness of that, that I care about that, that I want to heal that. Dell Johnson, um, who's is the other um, commentary that I recommended that you read, and I'll put these on the blog as well, but he says, you know, here's observations on what is there and what is not there. What's not there? Chaos, tears, death, mourning, crying, um, character traits inconsistent with the kingdom, the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, the murders, the immoral, um, the sense of what Ron was talking about, God's uh, weighty presence everywhere. There's no need for the sun or the moon because there's, there's uh, light. Uh, no gates, there's no fear of enemies, no foreigners, there's no curse. Um, we see people from all the nations. We see abundant creativity. Uh, we see a river of life. Um, when you start to see some of these things, I believe that some of this starts to begin to inform how do we begin to say, I'm living towards that reality. So how in, in my own circle can I begin to say, there's not a need for me to be fearful about us versus them. 
But this is just like we at the very beginning of this, we talked about this amazing guy, Ananias. He gets this vision from God. I want you to go pray for this guy, Saul. And he's like, Saul's a bad dude. I don't like Saul. I, Saul kills people. And God says, I'm going to call Saul your brother. And he goes and he prays for him. That's what we're talking about when you begin to see this kind of stuff. When you think about this creativity, when you think about this sense of flourishing, you think about what does it look like to have a city that is not about uh, taking from everybody, but is about service. It begins to make us think, how do we be as people then begin to give evidence of that uh, now? I want to finish, Brenda, if you would play that uh, video. I had asked Dr. Guter, he was here talking about the identity of the church and he was talking about witnessing. And I said, oftentimes when you think about witnessing, it's giving evidence. Just, you know, we want to talk, call people to a personal relationship with Jesus. So I said, is, I understand that it is that, but is there more? And this is what he had to say. Oh, yes. I mean, the witness is to the fact that God's reign is real and present in Jesus Christ. And that we can, we can be drawn into it and become a part of its uh, further unfolding that the real clue to human history and the clue to each individual person's life is that we are created to be representatives of God's love to the world. This really goes back to the very beginning of the Bible. To be created in the image of God is to be created as somebody who represents who God is to the world. And that's our vocation, to be evidence in the world that, yes, God's love is the, the truest thing we can say about reality, that we are loved and that we are made with a purpose, and that that purpose can be rediscovered and made to the center of our lives. One of the, my dreams for us as a community is um, we talk about releasing God's future today, and my hope is that we can be the kind of people who can dream, can imagine with a redemptive imagination wherever we go. Um, that can look like a lot of things. It looks like wh- how, what you do with business. It looks like how you conduct yourself in your neighborhood, in your community. Um, it looks like, you know, John, actually, I, I threw out the challenge. Write stories. Write a story uh, based on what we're talking about, Revelation. He, so he did that. He's writing a story that helps us to see what is really real and what is true. And, and especially if you are at all interested in screenplays or movies, I invite you to pick it up. Um, on your way out. That's a way that we do that. That's the, thing, the gifts that he is, um, that God has given John. That's the passion that he has. His job is to take that into a place where he's writing screenplays and stories. There isn't a single place where you can put your foot in this world that God says, I do not want to claim that for mine. I knew that is not a place that is not a place that I'm going to throw aside and go. I don't really care about that. I care about the entirety of creation, and I want you to be my my ambassadors, my witnesses, to say, this is God's. The truest thing about this is that not it is not oppression, it is not greed, it is not violence. God wills love in this place and the flourishing of life there. We're gonna next week we're gonna spend time probably doing a lot more worship than anything. Um, so we just spend some time singing about it, uh, maybe um, um, act, living this story. So we're going to spend time in worship next week. We're going to start that off with a dinner. And so I want to invite you uh, to come earlier and to sign up um, in the back. Uh, if you can help Brenna put that on, that would be great. Because one of the things that we do is we have dinner together. We celebrate. You look about visions of, of the future in the end. It's about a great banquet. It's about a great meal. It is about being together. And so I want to encourage you to come and begin our time. Let let us live this story by doing that. Um, And so I hope you can come out early this next week.